0: Is just a week or so away, which means you will probably be glued to your computer screen watching all the action on the internet. Well, hey, we here at News have a perfect companion piece of literature for you. It's our annual Tour de France guide. Yes, that's right. The bright yellow issue of News Print magazine on newsstands right now. It has all the information to take you inside the race. We have profiles of the racers who will be battling for the win, we have an inside look at the teams, we have a great inside look at the route and some of the climbs that they'll be tackling, and we even have some good features, we have an interview with Marcel Kittel, we have a big piece with Roman Bardet talking about what it's like to have the hopes and dreams of the entire country of France on his shoulders, and we have even more information in there, so it is the 2018 official guide to the Tour de France put out by VeloNews, News. Go check it out now. It's bookstores, Whole Foods, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere where you may find magazines. Okay, on the show. It's the Bell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, joined today by Dane Cash. Dane, hello, how are you? Hey, Fred, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Dane, I am really tired, fatigued, kind of hobbling around. I did a couple stages of the haute route. The like seven day bicycle challenge uh they have the hoot Ho- route rockies going on i did two days and um, i was cooked after two days Oof.
1: i was proud of my ride around the flats of niwat colorado this week now i'm feeling a little bit less proud
0: well i mean i there's no way i could make it seven days like the guys and gals of the hoot route their day uh, as we record this their day three or four uh, i may join them for another day but after day two which went up and over Berthoud pass I am totally smoked so we'll let the bike riding go to the professional bike riders because no one wants to hear about me riding my bike they want to hear about uh, the takes and the tour de france and that's why we have our intrepid reporter andrew hood on the line he's going to take us inside what's been going on in pro racing over the last few weeks hoodie uh sounds like you yourself have been on vacation preparing for the tour de france uh what's what's
2: this been like yeah, I did an important pre tour training camp, fellas. Uh ate a lot of uh tuna. Uh had some uh good jamo and Serrano, drank a lot of Riojo wine down in the down on the beaches there of uh southern Spain in the Cadiz area. If you're ever in Spain, that is the place to go to the beach. It's a little windy down there, it's great for kite surfing, but it's 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 got everything. And it doesn't have a lot of uh tourists either, so
0: yeah, I have uh, noticed a lot of cycling journals have been on Twitter this week, tweeting out photos from their pre-tour training camps. Yep. It's been kind of the running Twitter joke, cycling media, like, Hey, training camp is almost done. And basically training camp for a cycling journal equates to like eating good food. It's like, here I am actually eating good food before I subject myself to baguettes in plastic bags sold at French gas stations for the next three weeks. (laughs)
2: If you're lucky.
0: (laughs) At Buffalo Grill. uh,
2: and the Buffalo Grill. We can't forget the Buffalo Grill. There's always always at least one night of the Buffalo Grill during the tour, but hey, we're not complaining.
0: No, no, not at us. Uh, Well, I'm glad to hear that your pre-tour training camp went well. Well, guys, we have a great show to get to today. We are going to talk all about the Tour de France. We have some important storylines going into the tour around two of the biggest teams out there in the World Tour, the first being BMC Racing and whether or not that team is actually going to survive to see 2019 and what this team being in limbo means for the World Tour. We're also going to talk about Team Mitchelton Scott because they made a pretty big announcement this week that they are changing tack with their approach to the Tour de France, throwing all of their weight behind uh, the GC rather than the sprint train. Before we get to all of that fun, we had some racing go on this past week, and we had national championships going on across the globe. Peter Sagan won a national championship. Uh, let's see here. Eve Lampart won the Belgian national championship. Way to go, Eve! And we had our American national championships go down in Knoxville, Tennessee apparently the foul weather capital of the world this past week because i think everyone got stuck in knoxville that's what it was saying on twitter but dane what went down in knoxville take me through some of these races who are some of our big stars and stripes winners after this weekend
1: well we're gonna have a bit of a sequel year in the time trial department because amber nevin and uh, joey roscop both defended their time trial titles Uh, not a big surprise there those are two really strong time trialists the uh the road racing was a little bit little bit interesting on both ends corinne rivera finally snags a road racing national championship at the elite level she's of course won uh, like two thousand championships when she was a youth but uh she's never won that elusive elite women's road race title she was second three years running finally uh won that one over megan guarnier Uh, and then in the men's race bit of a dark horse uh jonathan brown brother of nate Got into a breakaway, a well-timed breakaway, and a pretty, pretty strong breakaway. It wasn't just a bunch of nobodies, and he left them behind uh, in the last two laps of that circuit, soloed to a pretty convincing victory. And yeah, I think a lot of people are suddenly saying, "Oh, well, who's Jonathan Brown?" Uh, and and big success for the Haggins berman Action Team, that that development squad to have a yet another national champion. He's just, I think he's twenty. Was he twenty years old? or He's quite young. So it's a big win for those guys. Quite
0: young. And, you know, the men's result really reminded me of the conversation we had last week with Alex Hausen here, where he was talking about the challenge of US nationals, where, you know, you think that the world tour riders have this huge advantage because they race at the world tour level and they're so much stronger. But you start to see it a race like nationals you know, team strength comes into play. And I think EF Education First had three riders. That's not enough riders to control a race. Even EF Education First with Keel Reinen from Trek Segafredo and, you know, Chad Haga from Team Sunweb, if they were to con- pool their forces, I still don't think that's enough to take on the strength of the domestic peloton. These guys are too strong and they're just out outnumbered.
1: Yeah. And you actually saw just that happen. There were a number of like really strong breakaways early in the race uh ef put two guys in the front to chase one of them down and then once it was chased down they were kind of gas and that's when the winning breakaway got away it was just too much for one team one tiny team to handle when you have action with you know eight guys and rally with like 27 guys out on the road it's a little hard for those world tour teams as talented as they are uh, to do much against that
0: uh, so it's another national title for action. They won with Greg Daniel a few years back, a very similar situation where Greg Daniel made this uh, early move and then attacked right at the right moment to snag the Stars and Stripes. So I continue to love U.S. Nationals because it's just this roll of the dice. I mean, we had Chris Horner out there racing 40, 40-something I 40 years old. I mean, he's so old. He was racing back when uh, Hoodie was just in
2: his uh,
0: late 40s, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Chris is catching up to me in years. Man, how old is in now? Forty-seven. Yeah, hes still,
0: He's still, uh, he's still young enough to get a happy meal at Mickey D's. I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Gotta love Chris Horner. Uh, what a story with him coming back, supposedly racing. Uh, to- well to colombia he'll give oscar sevilla a run for his money for the old riders jersey
0: <laughs> yeah the oldest rider <laughs> the gray jersey the gray jersey uh u.s nationals i love that race too seems like really on the time trial side um we've seen these eras in which one or two one, one rider tends to dominate time trials. so joey Roscoff, you know may be now the the time trialist for this generation so that's something to follow amber Neben, she's so good She's not slowing down anytime soon, so chapeau to her. Um, all right. Well, that's U.S. Nationals. We have new riders in the Stars and Stripes jerseys. We watch them all year. Uh, let's get on to the Tour de France because we are recording this on Tuesday the 26th.
1: Happy birthday, Greg Lamont, by Happy the
0: way. birthday, Greg Lamont. Tuesday,
1: June 26th. Wow. Yeah.
2: And the only, only Tour, de, Tour de France winner who is American, that's by right. the way. That's
1: right. Really? Yeah.
2: Wow. Is that a new development?
1: I heard about that one. We
0: are T-minus uh, about 10 days to the start of the Tour de France. I can't do the exact math right now. But, Dane, you will be departing the Ville News headquarters in one week's time to go link up with Mr. Hood in France for the Grand Depart. And, you know, the first question I have for you guys is – what are the storylines should we be following through the first part of this Tour de France? You know, the second half we've talked a lot about how it gets mountainous. There's 65 kilometer stages. There's all these GC things. But for the viewer, that first, the first collection of stages, what do people need to keep their eyes
1: on? I think it's all all about the sprints for quite a few of those days. A lot, a lot of sprinter opportunities as the race kind of crosses from northwestern France to northeastern France. It's going to be mostly flattish days. Uh, the, the real storyline for the GC guys, and this is one that uh, Movistar's Eusebio Unsuay has been talking about every time we've heard from him for the last three months, is just how big a deal that first week is going to be in terms of crosswinds and that ninth stage with the cobblestones, which, as we've seen before, can just totally throw a Tour de France into disarray. That's where Chris Froome uh, abandoned the 20, it, 2014 Tour de France, I think it was, that he pulled out of, was on the cobbled stage. Uh, that, that stage, anything can happen there.
2: Hoodie, what do we got to keep our yeah. eyes on? Yeah, I think it's the, the three C's. dangerous, pegged it. Crashes, cobbles, and crosswinds. Those are the big, the big talking points. I'll be interested to watch to see how the eight-man rule affects the crashes in the Tour de France in the first week because that was part of the rationale. Having less warm bodies on the road will mean a little bit safer race. I've, I've kind of gotten some mixed messages from some of the riders in, that I've talked to about this issue. Is, is the race safer because there are a few riders on the road? I really there's not really a consensus, I don't think, yet among the Peloton. But man, at the Giro, we did not really see too many nasty crashes. And we haven't really seen a lot of bad crashes, even in other races throughout this spring approach to these Grand Tours. So maybe the first week we'll see fewer crashes. We just don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. And the other big talking point is going to be the team time trial, Stage 3. I think that's going to be a huge marker on the right. race. I think that's going to just I think Sky, BMC, a few other teams, but you're going to see a lot of guys, I think, lose a minute or possibly even more on that, on that stage three.
1: Yeah, if you're a Warren Barghese fan, I think you're going you're gonna to have a happy two days where Warren Barge is on the same time as every other GC contender. And then you're going to see he and his Fortune A.O. team lose three minutes in that 35K time trial against like a team like Sky. Pretty much all those smaller teams up against some of the big World Tour teams are going to lose a lot of time.
0: Yeah, I'm not so uh, worried about Bargee because, yeah, that's a foregone conclusion. The guys I'm worried about are like Rigoberto Urán, yeah. Roman Bardet, maybe even Nairo Quintana, although it sounds like Movistar have actually had fairly competent team time trials over the years. Oh, yeah, they... Um Say what you will, you know, thinking of them as a Spanish team, a bunch of spindly Spanish climbers that can't team time trial. But I'm remembering back to some TTTs uh, back in the day where they've actually done all right.
1: Yeah, they've had quite a few guys in that team that they can bring in to balance out the climbers, and I think they've done that this year. They've done really well at Giro time trials in the past, a couple of years ago.
0: So we mentioned them as part of this team time trial discussion. This is the team that I would expect to win or contend for the win BMC. And BMC Racing has a really interesting Tour de France coming up because, as you may have read on uh BMC have spent the entire 2018 season wondering whether they are going to continue. Um, the team's owner, Andy Reese, passed away earlier this year. Even before that, there was uh, rumbling that Reese may be pulling back from the team, or at the very least, searching for a new sponsor to come in and take over. Um, Reese, he uh, was a Swiss multi-multi millionaire, if not billionaire. Created his fortune through making um, hearing aids and hearing systems, and then also had this BMC bike brand. He was just a real patron of the sport, and BMC's BMC Racing's model was very much built off of this patronage. Basically, the team was funded by, in a large part, by Reese. Making the contributions to keep the team going. The hard part with that model is, though, is once the sugar daddy goes away, you're left with a big old, uh, you know, bunch big old expenses, large overhead costs, and you have to go to a brand or multiple multiple brands and try to get them to uh, to punch out those overhead costs. So, hoodie, you've been following this story for a while. You know what have been the various ins and outs of the BMC sponsor hunt story throughout 2018 and where are we uh, now with it?
2: Yeah, a pro cycling team is a great tax write-off if you're a wealthy patron of the sport. You know, it has some, perhaps, uh, some publicity benefits. but Really, I mean, it, it underscores really just how unstable the model is. You know, it's a long conversation that's that been under, underwriting the sport for, uh, for decades, really. Um, the BMC really is no surprise. I mean, they knew this coming in through at the end of last season, coming into 2018, that the, the sponsor search was on the menu. Jim Wilkowitz, who as the longtime manager, you know, has been down this road before, you know, with Motorola, <coughs> Motorola closing down in the uh, 1990s, so he knows what it's like to be out there. He's been banging on doors. Um, there were that report that came out during the Giro. There was doing some sponsor swapping with another team that supposedly the team's future was safe. That seems to have stalled out. And as of right now, I mean, you're going into the tour de France. If you don't have a sponsor lined up, um, riders are going to stop, start bailing. You know, the top riders are not going to wait. Um, you know, last year when education first stepped in to save what was cannon Dales presented by you know, fill in the blank. Um, That happened much later in the season. That was at the end of the season. So a lot of riders um, could perhaps wait or didn't have much of a choice to wait because that happened in September. Whereas, you know, it happens now in the middle of the season. The top riders, the guys like Van Aremats and the Ports, are not going to be waiting uh, by going into the Tour without a contract. And I think right now the team is still uncertain. I've heard everything from the team is safe to to the other extreme that There's nothing set up, set to go at all yet for a new title sponsor.
0: Yeah, I know throughout the year we heard rumblings that maybe Tag Hoyer, which is a minor sponsor, would step up, that maybe they would find something in the financial sector because the team is Swiss and Switzerland has this robust um, collection of national banks. But yeah, I mean, here we are heading into the Tour de France. And Jim Okowitz, you know, a few weeks ago gave an interview where he basically said, "Ah, I've been in this situation before. We can sign riders as late as, you know, October, November. I'm not worried about it. And You know, my response to that was like, well, you can sign some riders by October, November, but your stars aren't going to wait around. So, you know, if you're able to find a sponsor that late in the year, boy, there's a situation in which BMC, one of the strongest teams of the last decade, could either be weakened if they're even
1: able to survive. Yeah. And one interesting sort of note there that kind of creates this vicious cycle of if you lose a star, if you lose Greg Van Avermaet, then you can't tell potential sponsors that Greg Van Avermont's going to ride for your team. And that makes it harder to find a potential sponsor. And the more guys they lose, the harder it becomes to woo those potential sponsors. And I think that when a team like
0: BMC has an unstable future, it has this outside effect on all of cycling, namely the transfer market. Hoodie talked about this earlier, but the Tour de France is actually a really important time for the transfer market. It's not necessarily the time in which the most prominent popular riders are getting signed but it's a time in which a lot of the second tier riders are inking their contracts for the following year a story I worked on a few years ago I had these scenes described to me of the second rest day of the Tour de France when uh, all of the agents and then all of the team managers meet at sort of an undisclosed hotel lobby and have this almost musical chairs type situation where guys are just having these 15 minute meetings with each other going around and around and around to hammer out deals, to test the waters, to see where everyone is. And you know, oftentimes it's that second rest day that guys are coming out knowing what their fate is going to be for the next year. And here you have this team with all of these riders including a bunch of prominent stars where they don't know what the future is. And when something like that happens, that musical, that game of musical chairs, it's just really unknown because how do you adequately value someone like Mickey Shar if you know that you know, or someone. How do you adequately value a very strong rollure domestique when you know that Mickey Shar may be on the market?
2: Yeah, we saw last year the question mark about Quick Step really kind of set up what was really a very active rider market last last season, going into the second half of 2017. Uh, with BMC, a big question mark, it's going to have the same effect. To be able, kind of, everyone be waiting to see what happens. Once that floodgate, where the fact last year with Quick Step, everyone was waiting for Quick Step, Lefebvre pulled it all back together, but it still kind of had the ricochet effect all throughout the entire peloton. And another big, another big story this year is a, a, UAE. They again have a lot of money to spend, and they're they're looking to buy some big riders. Um, there's even rumors of Van Avermaet going to that team. They're going to be a major player because they want to just bolster, get a GC rider on that team to help Dan Martin. As well as get a top quality classics rider. Um, no, no offense to who's already there, um, but that's a team that wants to just, you know, really step up to even a higher level again. This, this coming into uh, 2019, so it, that's just the nature of this business, though. It's 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 an unpredictable. Everyone and everyone's be riding for themselves. That's what might actually happen with BMC. Is that when uh, the 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 word goes out that the sponsorship is dead, riders will just be trying to get some result, trying to get something out of out of it for themselves. And that oftentimes can just kind of collapse into uh, what's quite fun to watch, but uh, quite a stressful situation for all the riders on that team.
1: I will say, if we look back to when Yam Cycling, uh, once we knew that they were going down, uh, there was a two or three month period where all those riders just started winning after it was known that they weren't going to exist anymore. And a bunch of those guys got nice contracts elsewhere. I mean, you saw... Uh, Harlan said Pantano went on to become uh, one of the big guys over at Trek. And uh, Larry Warbass got a job. A couple of guys who, yeah, it seemed like the pressure cooker maybe had an effect. I don't know. So that could ha- possibly happen there for BMC. So
0: we've seen this happen a number of times uh, before with high-profile teams knowing that their future is uncertain. I mean we saw this with uh, Tinkoff. We saw this with EM. But here's the thing that we haven't really seen before, at least not in the, in, in memory that's coming to my mind, is a team with a bona fide Tour de France contender having that happen. So we saw a report today in Cycling News linking Richie Porte to Trek Segafredo. That makes sense. Trek Segafredo, one of the biggest uh, teams in the world tour. They haven't had a real bona fide GC star in a year since Contador went away. So it makes perfect sense to have a guy like Richie Porte on the team. But what kind of stress... Does that bring to Richie Port's life during the Tour de France? I mean, here he is, second year in a row. He's super strong. He has all this pressure lumped on him. Everyone's talking about, oh, is he going to crash? Is he going to have bad luck? You know, there's mental pressures, emotional pressures. And then to throw the added pressure on top of that, that, hey, maybe your team is going away. Hey, maybe your uh, agent is going to have to be shopping you around. I mean, I know that these agents are professional and are good at trying to shield their clients from pressure. Part of me wonders, oh, what does that mean for uh, a rider? Richie Port, if you're listening right now, please call into the show. We'd love to have you on, hear what's going on in your head right now about about the pressure. I don't know, Hoodie, have you uh, heard anything like that from riders about the uh, the the pressure of that the uncertainty like this can bring heading into a race like the
2: Tour? I think it could add some pressure, obviously, but it's the right kind of pressure, I think. Uh, you know all these guys that are at this level, they want to stay in the game, and that kind of pressure is usually just, as Dave pointed out with EM, those guys that start started all winning races, and that's usually what happens because they want. You know, if you want that two million dollar contract, you just have that much added pressure to go out and prove that you're worth it to someone else on the market. You know what also happens though too is if you have another team closing, like right now, if it may be maybe BMC is the only one. We've also had situations where almost two or even three teams have kind of collapsed all suddenly at the same time. And you have a glut on the marketplace and you have a lot of uh, that drives the prices down and it makes it harder for riders to find places on teams. But right now, I think most of those guys at BMC, they'd already scaled back a lot from last year already. I think BMC has one of the smallest Pro Tour rosters this year at 22 or 23 riders. So I think most of those guys would be able to find a spot at the world tour, you know. Especially some, you know, like you said, for such a deep quality on, on that team.
0: Yeah, I'm not so afraid about someone like Richie Port. What about like a Brent Bookwalter or Joey Roscoff? You know, these guys. You know, Brent's been in the game a long time. He's a veteran. He is probably closer to the end of his career than he is to the start of it. You know, is this? The catalyst for I don't know him racing in domestically or him having to retire. You know, we saw a report linking T.J. Van Garner into Team EF Education First presented by you know, EF. Which makes sense. American rider, American team. But like, what does that mean for him? You know, he's in a domestique role. He doesn't actually have a chance to really prove himself at a race like the Tour de France.
1: Right. And if you're port, you're starting to look around to say, hey, are these guys that I'm trusting to be my domestiques actually going to be domestiquing for me? Or are they going to be trying to get some results so they can get a job next year? Which who could blame them if they did? But his support is going to rely on them not doing
0: that. Yeah. A lot of questions heading to the Tour de France around BMC. Um, I have to say as a fan of the sport, I would love it if the team kept going. I remember when Team BMC started as a continental – maybe as a pro-continental team here in the domestic ranks with guys like Brent Bookwalter and Scott Moniger and some of these um, you know veteran American racers and to see that team – progress and grow to the world tour level and have a lot of success and then become one of the richest teams remember they went on that spending spree Philippe gilbert Cadell evans like uh tour who you know they they were the
2: they were the big hitters Finney, number, number, tj a, yeah, yeah. Samu
0: sanchez were,
2: too. yeah sammy sanchez oh yeah what about him
0: so we'll cross our uh, fingers for bmc
2: yeah hoodie it, it, it would be it would be sad to see that team fall because it would kind of be one less team with uh, you know an american link in, in the world tour i mean it's it's an international team with swiss roots obviously but it still was a us registered team it came out of that uh, the history that fred just mentioned um but just kind of make it that much a little bit harder for these guys like yeah like a Joey roscoff or, or uh you know Brett walking to find that spot in the world tour because you know even uh, you know, education first is always wanted the two three spots for americans and if that team folds that's three spots less
0: Cross our fingers
2: for BMC Racing.
0: On to the next team we want to talk about because they have a lot going on at the Tour de France. And that is Team Mitchelton-Scott, the Australian team, better known as Orica or as Woody pronounces them, Orica. I love the Orica. Um, Mitchelton-Scott had some news come out this past week that they were changing tack for their Tour de France goals. And they were going to leave their sprinter, Caleb Ewan, at home in favor of another domestique to help Adam Yates contend for GC. Now, this was a big story because throughout 2018, the messaging coming out of Team Mitchellton Scott was that this is the year that they're taking Caleb Ewan to the Tour de France to see if he could contend for the green jersey, see if he could win some stages. He is a very, very, very fast sprinter very small has that aerodynamic low to the bike sprinting technique that he has unleashed at the Giro d'Italia and won all those stages that tour down under, but he's not going to be there. And I, I think it caught some of us by surprise and hoodie. What, what are the reasons behind a team like Orica Scott not wanting to go with you? And I know that there are obviously performance reasons, but then it sounds like there may be some contract reasons as well.
2: Yeah, I think it, there's several reasons why. You're looking at Caleb Ewing, his sprinting ability. He's obviously a world-class sprinter. I think he has almost 30 wins ready. He's only 23-ish. Uh, he was second in San Remo this year. But he's never really consistently won at the world tour level in Europe. I mean, I know he has one Giro stage win, one wealth of stage win. Uh, he's won a handful of other European races. But most of his wins have come Tour down under, have kind of come at the European continental level racing, not to say that he's not a great sprinter, but there is that question, it's like, what what could Eureka uh, actually get out of bringing Caleb Ewan? You bring Ewan, you got to bring at least one other guy to have for the sprint to lead him out, at least. It comes into the whole issue of the eight-man teams. One less guy makes a huge impact on these rosters. We haven't seen too many teams yet splitting their team between a GC and a sprint train. I think the only team that might so far of about the eight or nine teams confirmed might be Quick Step where they have jungles and they have quite a lot of uh, stage hunters in that team. But you're seeing all of them, the big hitters, the Stars, the BMCs, the Skies, all those guys are leaving the sprinters at home and just coming in for the, all the GC with eight guys. It just makes it that much harder to bring a sprinter.
0: It sounds like there may have also been some uh, the fact that he hasn't signed a contract yet, and they've been on, there's been ongoing negotiations about his contract, and you know because of the way that cycling is structured with UCI points, when a rider leaves a team, their accrued UCI points leave with them. So a team like Mitchelton Scott could face a situation in which they brought him to the Tour de France and he won stages or did well and accrued lots of uci points and then he signed for a different team and all of those points went somewhere else so they've you know teams face this difficult situation of saying well do i do i have that scenario or do i leave this guy home and and take another rider dane i know we had a little discussion in the office about this because uh it seemed like you were I don't know. You disagreed with this decision to leave Caleb Ewan home.
1: I do, I, uh, but mostly because that they have been playing this, uh, playing it up so much that he's going to go for so long, and I think, it, I think kind of sends a bad message about uh, the team and, and the environment within that team, which has had some rumblings in the past of there being some behind the scenes stuff. I mean, we saw with uh, Michael Matthews and Simon Garrens in the past, there was this. Notion that they weren't getting along, they couldn't get along, and Michael Matthews eventually moved on. And then Simon Garens moved on not long after that. Uh, they put out this really, you know, very honky dory all for one message. They actually have a movie called All for One. Uh, but I think behind the scenes, you see something like Ewan signing with another team. Possibly that's the rumor that he's going to Lotto Sudol. Uh, the fact that the team has said, oh, you know what, all those things we were saying for six months, that's actually not true. Uh, th- that fact alone. I think that's that's the thing that kind of gets me and makes me wonder if there's something more going on behind the scenes. I, I actually, I mean, I can totally understand why they wouldn't bring him. Uh, I'm just a little bit surprised that they would that they would make this decision after pretty, pretty clearly saying that this was going to happen. And then, so, oh, backtracking.
0: How much do we think this might be because of uh, potential contract negotiation with Yates brothers? That's what I want to know.
1: So my thought, I, that, that's actually my first thought when this happened was, well, maybe this is a message to the Yates brothers, right? But on the other hand, This is also, I mean, this message also kind of says that Orica's Scott can't be, or Mitchelton, sorry, can't be trusted with what they publicly say. So the Yates brothers might see this as, oh, they're really buying into the GC, but they might also see it as, oh they can't really be trusted with what they said very publicly. So I
0: don't know. Well, Adam Yates, he, you know, he had this crash earlier in the year, broke his pelvis, and then came back and has been very strong. He was second place overall at the Dauphiné. He won a stage. He looked fairly strong in California. I believe he was third overall, fourth fourth overall. So he's definitely on the rise. And, you know, I just wonder if they looked at his result from the Dauphiné and then they looked at Caleb Ewan. You know, Caleb Ewan, we saw him at the Tour of California He was okay. He got two second places, but he was not able to win against you know the strongest sprinters out there. And I just wonder if they just sort of made the simplest equation and said, you know, we think we have a better chance with Adam Yates than we do with Caleb Ewan. End of story.
1: And I think also being an Australian team, the the publicity in Australia is going to be all about the yellow jersey. I think the sprints are, you know, they're a big deal, but it's all about the overall, very much similar to, I think, Racing in the U.S. Or, or in the U.K., there is a, I think, a bit of an outsized focus on, on in the Anglo sphere, on the yellow jersey compared to sprint stages or green jersey, that kind of thing. Hoodie, we're
0: gonna <laughs> we're gonna rely on you to, yeah, to settle the score. You're gonna have to get link up with Whitey, get the inside story.
2: Yeah, it really, just underscores that this team was completely swapped, switched over to a GC uh, oriented team. Uh, you know, before they were, the team started as a sprint team. When it came out, you know, five six years ago, it had stage hunters, it had sprinters, it had no one for GC. But then they signed Chavez and the Yates brothers uh, three four five years ago. That was their kind of long term plan to get to where right. they are right now. And I think that performance by his brother Simon at the Giro and hoping to have the same expectations with Yates. I think he was uh, fourth two years ago, won the white jersey. So they have a lot of confidence in these Yates brothers, and both of those Yates brothers are on off contract after this season so that's probably right what dane said is you know how much money they're going to have they're probably going to want to invest to keep both of those brothers might not have the chain to lay down for caleb to keep him around as well because he'll also want some big money going into next season
1: how weird must it be for adam yates to have the hype around him basically go way up because of what his brother did like it's nothing i mean he's had a nice year. But I think because Simon did well at the Giro, people think, oh, Adam Yates, basically the same guy, must be ready to go win the Tour de France. And he didn't ask (laughs) for that. He didn't do anything to to make that happen necessarily. That's probably kind of weird. These cycling fans should not be buying stocks if that's the way they think. Maybe not. Maybe (laughs)
0: not. Uh, Oh, Hoodie, so I mean with Yates, both Yates brothers, and I believe Chavez may be up to or up soon for contract – that that's an interesting decision that Mitchelton Scott is going to have to make in itself. How do you see something like that playing out?
2: Yeah, I think that a lot of this also will come into play in terms of just your latest results, right? I mean, it doesn't matter that Chavez was second and third at the Wealth of two years ago. You know, he did not have a great, uh, really, season this year at the Giro. He had that, you know, won that stage and then got sick and just didn't have the form for the rest of that Giro. So, yeah, I mean, will they have enough money I know the team's looking for uh, another co-sponsor as well to kind of have a deeper pocketbook to be able to keep all of these guys. But I think we'll we'll get that answer pretty quick if we start hearing rumors about uh, Chavez perhaps heading to uh, some different uh, different different pastures.
0: Well, lots of storylines to take us into the Tour de France, and BMC and Mitchelton Scott are just two of them. So, hoodie. Before we bid you adieu, let's talk green jersey. Who's going to win the green jersey this year? What do you What do you think in green jersey?
2: Yeah, I mean, if Sagan doesn't elbow somebody and kicked out of the race, uh, you know he'll he'll win it again. I mean, come on, it's 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 his jersey. He owns it. Um, you know, we have the instant replay now in cycling, so so maybe because even last year, of course, the Sagan controversy, he actually didn't elbow anybody. I should qualify that 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 comment. Um, you know his elbow never actually touched Cavendish, so so that that is that is uh, that's Sagan's jersey. He'll want to win that, you know, get that back, and, and uh, he'll be he's Mister Consistency. If he doesn't win, he's second, he's third, he's always right there in the points, even in those transition stages and the uphill finales that sprinters might get dropped. Sagan's always uh, knocking on the door, so yeah, I, I don't see anybody, maybe you know, I don't see really anybody giving uh, Sagan a run for his money for the green jersey.
1: Dane, Bling, yeah. Ma- Bling Matthews. I'm going to well, say Boda's hoodie. I, th- I mean, ap- apologies to Bling, but I think he's just keeping that jersey warm for Peter Sagan for yeah. for this year. He had a nice year last year, but uh, Bling's never really had the ability to actually pull off those big, big wins consistently like Sagan has shown in the last three or four years. And uh, I think now that he's back and healthy again, as long as he doesn't elbow or is seen to have elbowed somebody. I think he's uh, he's going to win that Great Jersey.
0: Yeah, consensus Peter Sagan is going to win this thing. Uh how about on to polka Dot? Anybody want to take a stab at who's going to win best climber?
1: Micah or Bargui, I think are my two front runners uh-huh. for that one. Yeah. Two guys who are good climbers who are not going to really feature in the GC and will probably get off the leash and go for it. I think
0: yeah. did, I I'm going for Bardet. I think he has a crappy first week in that team time trial and loses enough time that at some point they let him off the leash and say, "Ah, salvage a result for France."
2: Uh, I'll go for uh I'll go for Landa. Same scenario. <laughs> He'll probably get dropped and then he'll go on some 10-minute escape escape and uh, and put make my little nervous and spice up the race a little bit. Hope so.
0: Can't wait to see yeah. that. All right, hoodie. Go get your siesta and finish your training for the Tour de France because the next time we hear from you two, you guys will be in oh. France. Okay, we are back. So guys. A bit of news that came down this past week from the UCI contained in a giant press release about the UCI's agenda for the year 2022 uh, encompassed lots of different topics like trying to ban tramadol, um, trying to boost gender equality, and hidden in this document – well, I would say hidden, hidden in plain sight – was the news that the UCI is – hitting the green light on disc brake usage in World Tour road races basically immediately starting July 1st. So to take us through the ramifications of this news is Dan Cavallari, Tech Editor. Dan is here with us in studio. Let's welcome Dan. Yay! Yay! So, Dan, we have been talking about disc brakes and pro road racing for a really long time. We have used disc brakes to slice things open here (laughs) at the Villeneuve's offices and put the results on the Internet. Um, We've been following this for a long time. What does this mean to you? What does this signal to you? To me personally, it's it's just, I mean, this news is
3: so old at this point, but it's so new. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about disc brakes forever at this point, like you said, but the good thing is now it is official and there's no question disc brakes are here. And I think we're going to see more teams and more racers embrace them because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that's happened over the course of the three years since they started testing disc brakes is that. Uh, bikes in general that are equipped with with disc brakes have gotten a lot lighter, mm-hmm. which was one of the big complaints uh, that riders had was they wanted to ride the lightest equipment out there. Well, now a lot of disc brake equipped bikes are really butting up against that 6.8 kilo rule. I mean, these are some of the lightest bikes in the world and they're disc brake equipped. So there's really... There's almost no excuse at this point. Everybody's had a chance to try them. Everybody's had a chance to get used to them. Uh, The bike's technology is catching up. The weight is catching up. It's all here. And so this is a smart move by the UCI that, quite frankly, should have happened a long time
0: ago. So I'm looking at this story on cyclingnews.com, and they are saying that Trek Segafredo plans to use them at the Tour de France so, uh, do some riders from Quick Step Floors and Bora Hans um, do we think that there's a connection there with the big bike manufacturers of Trek and Specialized? Uh, the fact that the teams associated with these two manufacturers are going to be using disc brakes. I mean, is that, is that a coincidence or do we see that as maybe more of a strategic move?
3: Well, I think a lot of those companies were driving the innovation to begin with, and, and so it's not surprising that they're, those teams are, are running discs. Uh, but, I mean, we're also seeing brands like uh, Willier has got a, a, a TT bike now with disc brakes. Cannondale's had TT bikes with disc brakes for a while, and, and we've seen uh, sneak peeks at the Giro of their new aero bike with disc brakes. Um Everybody is, is is catching on to this this disc brake trend, and it's sort of been a a, a bottom up change uh, where you know a lot of consumer bikes have started to come with with disc brakes because it's sort of a no brainer for most of us. And it was racers who were sort of resistant to it. So now that we're seeing the technology improve and racers have gotten more time on it, I mean three years is a long time. Uh, and so there are a lot of racers who've who've been riding discs for for three years or more now. Um, and they're used to it and they're, they know how to ride, they know how to handle them. Uh, they know the drawbacks, they know the benefits. Um, so yeah, I think, I think certainly big brands like Trek and Specialized have the dollars and the research invested in it. So of course their teams are, are going, you know, full in on it. And also Marcel Kittle had such great success last year, uh, on a disc equipped bike from Specialized that, you know, this is, this is just a
0: continuation of that. I think there, you know, what I'm interested to see is having spoken to numerous pro riders who are on both sides of the disc brake uh, discussion. The you know the the con that you hear is the potential for a peloton that breaks at two different speeds. So you have um, some members of the peloton that will be on traditional rim brakes with carbon fiber, fiber wheels, and if there's if it's rainy, if it's wet, then the braking distance is going to be much greater than a peloton of riders on disc brakes that may be, you know, they have increased stopping power, so they're going to be stopping sooner. So they're worried that you could see a situation in which like a peloton is going down a steep descent, there's water on the ground, people start braking, and then you just start to see guys braking at different distances, you know... is this a realistic fear? Is this just the boogie? Is this the disc brake boogeyman (laughs) rearing eggs head? Where do you fall? I I mean, that,
3: that just seems like such a stretch uh, of of a concern when you're talking about guys who are barreling down mountains at 55 miles an hour in the rain. I don't think the brakes are really what's going to, you know, be the deciding factor of whether they stay on their bike or not. Um, And, and quite frankly, you know, if, if there are people stopping at two different speeds. And who cares? I mean, you guys are professional riders. They know how to handle their bikes. They know how to get around people. Um, you know, brake checks have been around for a long time. People have gotten around those. I mean, this is not a new paradigm. Certainly guys will dive into corners a lot faster now. Um, but the racing will adapt to that. And this is not a surprise. I mean, at this point in the game, we're three years in racers know that some guys are gonna be on discs and some guys aren't, they're prepared for this at this point. Uh, and they know how to handle it.
0: Within the wider story of disc brakes becoming more available on road bikes and proliferating across consumer road bikes – where do you see this move? What where does this stand out? What chapter is this in in the that that greater story? Do we see this as a floodgates opening type situation or is this just more of a okay, you know, they've been adopted by the high end and, right. you know, brands and consumers will, you sure. know, adopt them or not?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's always sort of a public opinion shift when the guys at the top of the, of the sport are riding certain technology and there's certain, uh, consumers who will say, okay, well, if the pros are riding them, then maybe I need them. The rest of us who've had time on disc brakes already know the advantages and, uh, it's been around a lot longer than three years, uh, for the consumers. So I think a lot of consumers have already sort of figured it out that disc brakes are, are the way to go. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think this is a sea change. I think the sea change already happened and now this is just sort of a the logical conclusion of
0: it. Okay, Dan, and then just spell out for us, in your opinion, why are disc brakes so much more advantageous than <laughs> brakes? Well, they're, they're reliable. They're
3: uh, better modulation, better strength. They are consistent in all conditions. Uh, it, it, there's really few reasons uh, not to run them, and, and I think primary among them is weight. But at this point, bikes have gotten so light that that's almost not a non-issue. Uh, and you know, there's been the argument that they're less aerodynamic, but again, engineers have caught up. They've said, okay, well, we'll make it more aerodynamic. And so now you've seen bikes that are developed where the disc brake bike is actually faster than the rim brake version. Uh, and so this is where the technology is going And And I think, um, at, there's just the benefits just outweigh any detractions, especially when you consider, Uh, People who ride in all conditions on rim brakes. I mean, it's been the story forever with carbon brakes is that as soon as it starts raining, you know, you grab the brake and you hope for the best. Uh, That's not an issue with this brakes at all. So I I really think, you know, there's certainly issues. You know, you have to bleed brakes. It's a little bit harder to route those cables internally. There's definitely drawbacks. But I think at this point in the game, the, the benefits are just so vast.
0: Yeah, to me, it's the modulation thing. This, uh, as I mentioned before, I did the Hote Route or a couple stages of the Haute Route earlier this week and descended down Berthoud Pass in a freezing rainstorm and was on traditional rim brakes because I am still one of those dinosaurs, one of those Luddites still mm-hmm. using traditional rim brakes. And but, but I've been on disc brakes before. And it mm-hmm. was, yeah, it was kind of coming in and out of the turns where it just felt so much more grabby mm-hmm. than when you're with the disc brake and can kind of right. just lightly just scrub that mm-hmm. speed up. Zing, 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 yeah. zing, zing, But I also understand, you know, I, I barely know how to change a flat tire. And like the thought of bleeding a disc brake system for me
3: just makes my brain explode. Sure. But I mean, you know, you could say the same thing about, uh, you know, when tubeless came out, everybody was really intimidated by tubeless and, oh my God, I got to put sealant in. How do I do that? Once you know the process, it's really easy. Uh, it, it's, it's a new thing, so everybody freaks out about new things. Uh, it, bleeding a disc brake is not difficult, and uh, it's been around on the mountain bike side forever. The systems are pretty refined at this point, and uh, you know companies have made an effort to make the bleeding process simple.
1: Is there concern among uh, like World Tour-type mechanics for the maintenance required to you know, maintain disc brakes through a long stage race and do the kinds of maintenance support things that are necessary?
3: I think there was certainly a learning curve for them too. I mean, you know, bleeding a disc brake and and adjusting a rim brake, certainly the disc brake bleed takes longer, but you don't need to do it very often unless there was some sort of catastrophic event. I mean, that's the great thing about disc brakes. It's sort of a set it and forget it thing. The pads last plenty long and, uh, you know, a bleed should last you many, many rides. I mean, it should last you a whole season, quite frankly. Um, and you know, there, there was some lever adjustability issues early on that have now been sort of, uh, refined for most companies. And I mean, all of the things that, that would make it difficult for a world tour mechanic to, to maintain disc brakes have sort of been addressed, right? It's, it's never a perfect system. I mean, and that's why you have mechanics, right? Um, but you know, the, the, the adjustments been made three years is a long time to figure it all out.
0: What I want to know, Dan is, do we think we'll see teams in which, Um, single riders choose to either have disc brakes or not have them? Or do we think the mandate will go out team-wide that, yes, everyone is riding on disc brakes now? Or no, we are going to be a team that doesn't have disc brakes. Basically, will riders be given a choice? I think so. Uh,
3: Right now, we've only seen one team come out and say, we are absolutely unequivocally riding disc brakes across the team. And that's Trek Segafredo. Um, And I think that's logistically smart. Uh, because now they only have to deal with disc brake wheels on, you know, on the neutral. Uh, excuse me, on the uh, support cars. Um, they're they're making a choice logistically here, I think. Uh, and now that they've got a full line of bikes that are available in disc options, and they're reliable, and they've been engineered to actually work with with disc brakes, and not just retrofitted or you know playing catch up. This is a wise decision for a team like Trek. Other teams that are smaller, I think, are still sort of experimenting with it. They're probably going to give their riders a choice. You know, they want their riders to be comfortable. They want their riders to to not be thinking about their gear while they're racing. So I think you know, unless unless the riders are, are wholesale in, investing in it and, and buying into it, you'll probably still see a mix of rim and and discs for the for the foreseeable future. But if you're asking me long term in five, six, seven years, are we going to see the pro peloton on disc brakes? My inclination is to say yes, but I do think there's going to be some resistance. It's going to take longer than it should.
0: I see this as a big sea change. I think that, um, you know, the UCI has been so protective of what – uh, of the rules governing bicycle design because I don't think they want cycling to turn to, to turn into like um some futuristic sport like I think of the football scene in Starship Troopers oh where they're fl- <laughs> they're playing with a spiked ball and yeah. they're wearing hockey helmets and yeah. bodysuits yeah. and like cycling wants to avoid the the cycling version of that yeah. where everyone's on some weird airfoil yeah. with like a crazy aerodynamic helmet and mm-hmm. disc brakes so for them to budge on disc brakes, I actually see that as a semi breakthrough moment for this very traditionalist organization. That, you know, if they had their druthers, there'd be, there are people in the UCI that would love for people to still be on like Eddie Merck's bikes from 1989. Sure. Six you know, speeds, yeah. 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 So here we are. Disc brakes, brave new world. Yeah. Be careful when you're at the Tour de France, well, those disc brakes might just fly oh, off. Man, off bed right in your forehead i want to see that's space bugs that's what i want oh yeah from yeah. starship troopers that's pretty Cool. I tour de france. fight those with the, disc with the spinning well, blades exactly of death. Yeah. why
1: not yeah. they should make a whole jersey for it yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you dan cavallari for stopping by and keep your eyes open for those disc breaks at the tour de france we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters@competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velo News on Facebook at facebook.com slash News magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. News podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the Velo News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout, playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drum. We'll be